0: Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be.
1: My dear friends in Christ, we come now to the 28th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And once again, as last Sunday, Jesus intends to teach us through a parable. Last Sunday, Jesus taught us through the parable of the tenants, and today, the word of God nourishes us through the parable of the wedding feast. It is important to recall at the outset that these parables are taught by Jesus within the final week of his earthly life, between Palm Sunday and the Passion, within the context of Matthew's Gospel. Consequently, these parables are part of an extended portion of Matthew's gospel running from roughly the second half of chapter 21 to chapter 25 that contain Jesus' teaching on various topics, many of which have to do with the end times. Though we haven't focused upon it, this theme has been present in our discussions of the parables of the two sons and the tenants over the last two Sundays. In the parable of the two sons, Jesus makes the connection explicitly by telling the chief priests and the elders of the people that those who have converted, such as tax collectors and prostitutes, are entering the kingdom of heaven before them. Likewise, at the end of the parable of the tenants, Jesus tells the chief priests and the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is being taken away from them, to whom it had been entrusted to nourish and cultivate, and is being given to those who, Jesus says, produce its fruit. There is therefore an element of final judgment latently present in these parables, There will be a time to come, a final time, which Jesus referred to last Sunday as the time of the harvest, when we will have to give an account for what we have done, for how we have lived, for how we have used the precious gift of life and time, and this will determine whether or not we are given entry into the kingdom of heaven. But what exactly will our judge be looking for then? What will be the measuring stick by which he measures us to see if we measure up? We have already given an answer to this question through examining what Jesus means by producing the fruit of heaven when discussing the parable of the tenants. Last Sunday, we discussed how the divine gardener desires to develop within us the life of Christ, cultivating within us various aspects of his life, which we call virtues, so as to reach full maturity in him. It is those who have developed these virtues who are prepared to go to the wine press, so that they might pour out the life of Christ within them to give life to the world. This measuring stick of judgment, if you will, is made more obvious in today's parable of the wedding feast. And once again, the lesson is twofold. On the one hand, Jesus is teaching us what God has in mind for us while simultaneously warning us of what could keep us from attaining the end for which we have been created. Jesus begins today in verse 2 of the 22nd chapter of Matthew's gospel by saying, The kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. This seemingly mundane verse which sets the scene for us is a beautiful example of how dense and immensely rich scripture is. For within this one verse, there are three important elements to note which speak to the created purpose of the human creature. The first is the king. Kings are figures that we in the Western world, who live in nations that are variously structured as democracies, have ambiguous feelings about. On the one hand, we have a fascination with them. Millions, for example, tuned in to see the coronation of King Charles III of England. On the other hand, those of us who live in democratic nations are repulsed by the idea of a king, of someone having absolute authority over us. Kings, then, we might say, are figures we have a fascination with but have no desire to live under the reign of a king. Politically, this is not an issue, and even a good, many would say. But theologically, this is problematic. For our existence as creatures is nothing close to democratic in nature. The king in this parable represents the one absolute king, our creator and God, who has not only given and sustains us in existence, but has created us all on purpose with a purpose. This is therefore the first point we must acknowledge and accept if we are to receive the teaching Jesus has for us today. The second element to note is the Son. Very simply, the Son in the parable represents the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten Son, and eternal Word of the Father. The second element, then, nuances the first. In this parable, the King is God, but more specifically, the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. The second element also provides reference for the third element to note here, the wedding feast. It is this third element that brings the created purpose of the human creature to light. All of scripture details the drama of the eternal wedding feast. How from the first moment of creation, God the Father has desired to draw all things into communion with himself. Our first reading for today from the book of the prophet Isaiah is an excellent example of this. There in verse 6 of chapter 25, God describes the salvation he is working for his people through the image of a rich banquet, saying, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will provide for all peoples a feast of rich food and choice wines, juicy, rich food and pure, choice wines. If the description of this banquet sounds familiar, it should, for the adjectives used here are similar to those we have highlighted with respect to the story of creation in recent weeks. In Genesis 2, we hear that the garden God had created for and given to Adam and Eve was filled with every tree that was delightful to look at and good for food. From the very beginning, God has desired to share his life with the human family, and from the first moment of human existence, this reality has been sacramentally signified through the consumption of edible creation. Why? Providing an answer to this question opens avenues for an entirely different discussion on the meaning of food. For today, we might mention three reasons why God has chosen to teach the human family about its created purpose in this way that help us fill out our understanding of the meaning of the wedding feast in today's parable. First, eating is an absolutely necessary part of human life. If we do not eat, we die. God has created us in this way for a very specific reason. Put simply, the fact that we have to eat repeatedly in order to live reminds us that we are not God. With every bite, we are reminded that we are not the source of our own existence, but that our existence is provided for by something or someone else. This leads to the second point to note here. Eating is something we often do with those we share a life with. The decline of family meals is a sad and even tragic reality of our own time and place for this reason. Sitting at table with one another provides us with the opportunity to share our experiences with one another. It therefore provides us with the opportunity to enter into one another's lives, to share our existence with one another, if you will. When we bring this second point into conversation with the first and recall that God wants to provide and share a meal with us, we come to the realization that by providing us with food with a meal, God wants to commune with us. God desires us to share a life with him. This then leads to the third point to note, and it has to do with the nature of the meal giver. On this score, the most iconic literary figure is the title character from Isak Dennison's classic short story, Babette's Feast. After preparing and presenting a sumptuous feast, Babette is found sitting on the chopping block, surrounded by more black and greasy pots and pans than her mistresses had ever seen in their life she was as white and as deadly exhausted as on the night when she first appeared and had fainted on their doorstep. Denison's use of the chopping block imagery is genius, for placing Babette upon it signifies that she has given completely of herself in providing this great feast. This reality is re-emphasized by Denison when it is noted that not only has Babette physically and emotionally exhausted herself by providing this sumptuous meal, but has also spent her last dime in doing so. In other words, Babette has completely emptied herself for the sake of others, giving them a taste of life to its full by giving of herself. This is a beautiful analogy of our relationship with our Creator, which also gives us a deep insight into the meaning of food and our existence as eating creatures. By making us eating creatures, that is, creatures that continually need to eat to preserve our existence, God is reminding us of our neediness. More specifically, God is reminding us of our need for Him. God, who alone possesses life in Himself, is the source of life for all other things that exist. What's more, this is not only a one-time deal. Just as we have an almost continual and limitless need to eat, so too we have a continual and limitless need to be upheld in existence by God precisely by sharing in His life. Thus, by providing us with every tree that is delightful to look at and good for food, God reminds us that from first to last, life is a gift. A gift that is inseparable from the giver. Food reminds us, as St. Augustine says, that God desires to give us himself. Augustine puts it this way in his third exposition on Psalm 32. Perhaps you want gold and can't get it, but when you want God, you will have him. Because even before you began to want him, he came to you. And when you had deliberately turned away from him, he called you. He who poured all your gifts upon you who brought you into existence, who bestows on you his Son and his rain in common with all your neighbors, even if they are wicked, who gives you crops, springs of water, life, health, and immense consolations. He is keeping for you something which he will give to no one else but you. What is this that he is keeping for you? Himself. Ask for something else if you can think of anything better. God is reserving himself for you. God desires to give himself to the human creature, and the very fact that we are eating creatures reminds us of this. That is why in his book Food and Faith, theologian Norman Wurzba describes food as God's love made nutritious and delicious. Eating, continues Wurzba, is the daily reminder that life comes to us as a gift. Filled with food, we continue to live. Filled with God, we have life to its fullest. When this analogy impresses its full weight upon us, it is no surprise that God has not only created us as eating creatures, but that he has given us nothing less than himself to eat in the Eucharist. Here, the phrase, you are what you eat, is important to keep in mind. What happens to the food we eat? In a sense, it becomes us. In his work on the body of the Lord, St. Albert the Great draws upon the science of nutrition to explain how it is that reception of the Eucharist is meant to pervade the whole of the one who consumes it. The universal doctor of the church writes, The nourishment of the soul in the sacrament is completed in this way, namely, that it is spiritually chewed by dividing and by tearing, so that it may be made subtle by the fiery heat so that it may be subtly sucked in by the subtle spiritual veins and may be carried by subtle ways to the spiritual members, so that it may be purified by the spiritual purifiers, and so that what is so subtle may be subtly infused proportionately to the members. Just as the food we consume provides us with nutrition by getting into our bloodstream, so too the Eucharist is meant to pervade the whole of our existence to the point that we become what we eat. The phrase, you are what you eat, is thus more appropriately applied to the Eucharist than anything else we consume. For God has given us this great gift to the Eucharist so that he might share his very life, his very self, with us. This is precisely why the analogy of the wedding feast is so wonderful in terms of providing us with an understanding of our created purpose. For not only does a wedding feast call to mind bountiful and delicious foods, But it calls to mind why such rich and extravagant fare has been provided in the first place, in celebration of the couple who has publicly vowed to live one life together. Now, let's bring in some of the details noted at the outset. Who is this wedding feast given for? The son of the king. Having already said that the king signifies God the Father and that the son of the king therefore signifies God the Son, the wedding feast in today's parable represents a huge leap forward in the history of Revelation. We have already seen that the book of the prophet Isaiah uses the analogy of a banquet to describe God's salvation of the people. In terms of the Old Testament, the analogy of marriage, and more specifically, the repair of a broken marriage, is used to describe God's work of salvation as well. This is seen, for example, in the book of the prophet Haggai. In chapter 2, God says through the prophet, On that day, oracle of the Lord, you shall call me my husband. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me with justice and with judgment, with loyalty and with compassion. I will betroth you to me with fidelity, and you shall know the Lord. Yet in the Old Testament, these two images of banquet and marriage are never brought together, such as they are in today's parable of the wedding feast. This is because the bridegroom had not yet appeared. Only with the incarnation of the Son was it made possible and known just how God intended to reunite himself to the human family and thereby save them in a manner before unimaginable. God would save the human family precisely by giving himself to the human family, not by abolishing what is human, but by taking what is human to himself to the very point of assuming and uniting human nature to the second person of the Trinity, the Son. So unimaginable was this, that when it did happen, many rejected it. A point painfully and forcefully made by Jesus in today's parable. As mentioned, there were hints that this would be the way God would save his people throughout salvation history. Therefore, he sent messengers to announce the forthcoming wedding feast. Jesus describes the repeated sending of servants in today's parable saying, The king dispatched his servants to summon the invited guests to the feast, but they refused to come. A second time he sent other servants, saying, Tell those invited, Behold, I have prepared my banquet. My calves and fattened cattle are killed, and everything is ready. Come to the feast. These servants are the same spoken of in last Sunday's parable, who were sent to collect the produce of the divine gardener. They are the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles, and all who preach the gospel in word and deed. Thus they endure the same outcome as in last Sunday's parable. They are ignored, mistreated, and even killed. The tragedy, and it is indeed a tragedy, fellow sinners, is that when the good news is rejected, the human creature misses out on the only way it has to flourish. For Created in the very image and likeness of God, The human creature cannot flourish and become what it has been created to be outside of the embrace of the God whose image it bears. My friends, with this weekend's parable, Jesus reveals the good news in a heartbreaking way. From the very first moment of salvation history, God has intended to bring the human family into His eternal and loving embrace through the incarnation of the Son. By the incarnation, God tells us, I desire to give myself to you, to such an extent that I willingly become one of you. The incarnation of the Son thus reveals God's intention to wed the human family to Himself, and this marriage is something He is willing to pay dearly for. For the price of this wedding feast is the passion of the Son of God. Thus, the wedding feast of the Son is the wedding feast of the sacrificial Lamb, as revealed in the book of Revelation. And there is a price of admission to this wedding feast on our part as well. For we will not be admitted to the wedding feast of the kingdom just by showing up. No, we must come properly dressed. That is, we must come prepared, fit for the kingdom of heaven. This is the lesson of the man who shows up without a wedding garment and is promptly thrown out of the feast. How do we ensure that we have the right attire for this feast then? We must clothe ourselves with Christ. For the only one fit for the eternal loving embrace of the Father is the Son. Thus, the wedding garment is the baptismal garment we receive at the sacred font of baptism. Thereafter, we enter into the embrace of Christ and thereby retain our garment by receiving the Eucharist. The Catholic philosopher Emmanuel Falk invites us to see the altar linens as bed linens to be shared by the divine bridegroom and his bride, the Church, which includes all of her members. For it is there that the divine bridegroom gives himself fully to his bride so that the two share one life. But sharing one life means sharing the whole of life. Thus our marriage to the lamb must give shape to and form the core of the whole of our lives. Thus in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, we read, The bright clean linen garment of the bride represents the righteous deeds of the Holy Ones. Celebrating the wedding feast of the kingdom requires living the life of the Lamb who was slain. Thus, the price of eternal happiness is nothing else than this, forsaking all others for the love of the Divine Bridegroom, Jesus Christ.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.